Good morning, everyone. Please join me in the song of invitation. There's a simple um, line that runs in and out, woven into this tune called, There is Room at the Table. And those are your words. There is room at the table for everyone. And uh, Malcolm will help you out so you know what time it is to sing. You might want to stay standing. With any luck, this will be a rousing ditty. And uh, we're just going to do the first couple verses. This is really a chance for you to get, your, uh, get the, the notes in your mouth so that when we sing it at communion, you'll be experts. Let our hearts not be hardened to those living on the margins. There is room at the table for everyone. from Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. One day, Jesus was standing beside Lake Gennesaret when the crowd pressed in around him to hear God's word. Jesus saw two boats sitting by the lake. The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. Jesus boarded one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon, then asked him to row out a little distance from the shore. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, row out farther into the deep water and drop your nets for a catch. Simon replied, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll drop the nets. So they dropped the nets, and the catch was so huge that their nets were splitting. They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They filled both boats full, so full that they were about to sink. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Peter and those with him were overcome with amazement because of the number of fish they caught. James and John, Zebedee's sons, were Simon's partners, and they were amazed too. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. As soon as they brought the boats to the shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. For the word of God in scripture, 
for the word of God among us, for the good word of God within us. Thanks be to God. The bright light for many of us at the inauguration almost a year ago, over a year ago, was when Amanda Gorman read her beautiful poem, The Hill We Climb. She was dressed in a yellow coat with a a red uh, headband, you may remember, and she read her poem with her voice as well as her body. A year after the inauguration on January 20th, she wrote in the New York Times that she almost did not accept the invitation to read. She writes, it's told like this, Amanda Gorman performed at the inauguration and the rest is history. The truth is I almost declined to be the inaugural poet. Why? I was terrified. I was scared of failing my people, my poetry, but I was also terrified on a physical level. COVID was still raging, and my age group couldn't get vaccinated yet. Just a few weeks before, domestic terrorists had assaulted the U.S. Capitol, the very steps where I would recite. I didn't know then that I'd become famous, but I did know at the inauguration I was going to become highly visible which is a very dangerous thing to be in America, especially if you're black, outspoken, and have no secret service. Didn't help that I was getting direct messages from my friends telling me not so jokingly to buy a bulletproof vest. My mom had us crouch in our living room so that she could practice shielding my body from bullets. A loved one warned me to be ready to die if I went to the Capitol, telling me it's just not worth it. I had insomnia and nightmares, barely ate or drank for days. I finally wrote to some close friends and family, telling them that I was most likely going to pull out of the ceremony. I got some texts praising the Lord. I got called pathologically insane. But I knew only I could answer for myself. Was this poem worth it? Well, we all know the end of the story here, of course. She decided to read, and I am so glad, and I think most of us are, that she did. She took her fear and allowed it to move her forward. She continues, I look at fear not as cowardice, but as a call forward, a summons to fight for what we hold dear. And now, more than ever, we have every right to be affected, afflicted, affronted. If you're alive, you're afraid. If you're not afraid, then you're not paying attention. The only thing we have to fear is having no fear itself, having no feeling on behalf of whom and what we've lost, whom and what we love. Powerful words, especially this week as we're marking 900,000 families who are grieving from losing someone from covid And after taking in the fact that we've almost been in this pandemic for two years, 
So this month um, is Black History Month, as I was saying earlier. I have a few um, good friends who are black, and they refuse to do any preaching during Black History Month because they don't want to be the token voice. They don't want to um, say, oh, I'll do that for you. They are encouraging preachers like me and churches like ours to, to take this on for ourselves and say this is a part of our history that we're going to learn from as well. And so I had to really do some thinking about that. Um, you know, what, what should I say? What, what is my space to speak in from this month? And um, what is ours to learn? And so I thought about, um, you know, this, these black women writers that I've been engaging with in my own personal reading over the last few years, and I thought, we'll just bring some of those voices into conversation with the scripture this month. So I want to start off by a little academic moment, introducing you to the term womanist. Now, you may or may not be familiar with that term. It's more prevalent in theological and literary circles, so it's something I learned in seminary, but you probably didn't learn if you were in, uh, studying computer engineering or anything like that. Um, the, the term womanist comes from the writings of Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple, of course. And uh, it began to be a way for black women to, to name what their voice was in academic and literary and theological circles. And they recognized that there were a lot of black men who were speaking at the time, but they had a very particular, um, a very particular part in those circles because they, they spoke both as women and as people who were black. And so they recognized the, that there was an intersection between their experiences in the world that, that black men didn't represent, black men could still be patriarchal. And so what does it mean when you have these multiple identities and these ways that you are formed and see yourself in the world? What does it mean to speak from that place? And so they began to, to do their work um, in a way that made space for their race, for their gender, for their sexual orientation, for their class, ways for these things to intersect and to form a perspective on the world. And they began to speak about the flourishing of all people. It's developed um, over time, and it's had a lot of brave pioneers, but I love this beautiful definition that came from Ebony Marshall Terman in the Christian Century. She said, Womanism was born around black women's kitchen tables, on front porches, in beauty shops, in women's clubs, in the varieties of black women's prayer closets, and in various women's spaces within the black church. In these spaces, as black women came to know the love, mercy, and justice of God for themselves, they forged a theology that boldly affirms that black women's lives are significant and valuable not only to God, but also to the church and the world. In the social, political, and religious realms that, are so often, that have so often erased black women's experiences, black women of faith had the courage to believe and assert I am. I am here. I am fully human, and I am fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. 
At the heart of this faith, she continues, is love. An unapologetic self-love in a world that has historically despised black women. Love for the spirit and a deep love of creation, culture, joy, and laughter. Womanist theology loves out loud, and it loves widely. Womanism is deeply concerned about the well-being of the entire community, male and female. In a womanist garden, every person matters. Womanist theology is aimed at supporting all oppressed communities in the work of liberation, while affirming black women's capacities, wisdom, and independence. A long reading, but I think a really good description of this is not a theology that was uh, born out of over and against other people, but a really something that said we're about the flourishing of everyone. But because, but because of our particular experience in being oppressed, we have space to speak to that in a really unique way. So I believe that listening to these voices can be really an essential way for us to learn how to hope in these difficult times. Because these voices have emerged in such a way that do believe in their own value and worth while loving others and while working for the flourishing of all life. This is exactly what we need to be learning and practicing in this time of history. As we are suffering, all suffering, under systems that have not always prioritized the flourishing of all, and who have required sometimes the diminishment and oppression of many in order to benefit the few. So how do we find ways to live and lead in a way that is committed to the flourishing of all creation? So that's why we're using these women as our guides this month. So this week, 23-year-old Amanda Gorman she was, grew up in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles with two siblings and a mother who was a sixth grade English teacher. She was reading and writing from a young age. I learned she had a, has an auditory processing disorder, which makes her hypersensitive to sound. And she also had a speech impediment in her childhood. And moving through all that, she eventually studied sociology at Harvard and graduated in 2020. And in this last year, she has emerged for our country as an important voice in this moment of history, teaching us how to keep going, how to find hope, how to emerge from this time in a way in which we are stronger and more connected and holding that vision for us over and over again. So as we turn to the text um, that Ginger read for us earlier in Luke, it's a familiar story to some of us, I imagine. Jesus gets in a boat with tired fishermen. They'd been out all night long, faithfully dropping their nets and not catching anything. They just want to go home and rest, you can imagine. And Jesus asks them to go out again. They bring in more fish than they can handle. And Peter drops to his knees in praise and awe. And Jesus says, this is just the beginning. From now on, you will catch people and not just fish. I relate to the disciples in their feeling of Jesus asking them to go out again. 
They are beyond exhausted, and they are tired of not feeling like they're going anywhere. Last week, I was talking to a coach of mine uh, who works with a lot of pastors in the United States, and I was talking about how tired I was, and he said to me, Jenny, every single pastor in America is burned out right now. (laughs) And every social worker, and every teacher, and every person in the medical profession, and every therapist, so many who have been showing up day after day in the last couple of years, and it's hard. Not to mention our students and our children who are continuing to to ride the waves. We're all really tired. We've been fishing during this long night and reaping very little, it seems. We're tired of showing up, tired of hoping, tired of thinking, that the pandemic is going to end next month or next year, tired of waiting for things to turn around. I think as I read this, uh, this text the first time, I was, again, I was hoping that maybe things didn't turn out so good in the end, you know? Maybe they went out and their catch was, like, kind of good, um, because I'm, I'm not really up for a happily ever after story right now. It just feels like that's not really my life and not a lot of our lives and not what we're seeing in the world. Sometimes stories don't always end happy and abundant. But maybe the fact that there were lots of fish in the end isn't the only point of the story. Maybe this isn't a happily ever after story. And maybe the point is also not to just keep going even if you're exhausted, because even Jesus rested when he was tired, and we can too. In Amanda Gorman's essay that I began with, she reflects on her golden moment of hope at the inauguration in the hard year that has followed. She says, On that January 20th, what I found waiting beyond my fear was all those who search beyond their own fears to find space for hope in their lives. To find space for hope in their lives. Who welcomed the impact of a poem into protests, hospitals, classrooms, conversations, living rooms, offices, art, and all manner of moments. I may have worked on the words, but it was other people who put those words to work What we've seen isn't just the power of a poem, it's the power of the people. I love this sense of the possibility of finding space for hope. That seems to me what the disciples did in that moment when they went back out in their boat with Jesus. And maybe that's what we need from this story today and in this moment. That in our exhaustion and despair, we are still invited to find space for hope. It's not easy, especially right now. She says, yet while the inauguration might have seemed like a ray of light, this past year for many has felt like a return to to the same old gloom. Our nation is still haunted by disease, inequality, and environmental crises. But though our fears may be the same, we are not. If nothing else, this must be known. Even as we've grieved, we've grown. Even fatigued, we found that the hill we climb is one we must mount together. 
We are battered, but bolder, worn, but wiser. I'm not telling you not to be tired or afraid. If anything, the very fact that we're weary means we are, by definition, changed. We are brave enough to listen to and learn from our fear. This time will be different, because this time will be different. We already are. Why? The truth is, hope isn't a promise we give, it's a promise we live. Tell it like this, and we, like our words, will not rest. Hope is a promise we live. When I read Amanda Gorman and other womanist writers, I read them because I find them much more practiced in living the promise of hope than I am. I have so much to learn from their kitchen tables, from their friendships, from their commitment to learning to love themselves, from their deep joy in the face of despair, from their insistence that their flourishing, their flourishing is connected to the flourishing of all things, not at the expense of others, but connected to. So how will we live in the promise of hope? How do you get back in the boat and go out fishing once again? I'm going to invite us to reflect on that question this morning. I want you who are here in the sanctuary to, to think about what that is. Where do you locate hope in your life? How do you find the strength to keep going? Maybe you want to um, make yourself a note. And for those of you online, make a note in the chat. I'm going to be inviting you to share those in just a moment when we come to the table. But this week, let us think about how we make space for hope in our lives. Let's keep getting in the boat and going out again and again. And I invite us um, in this offering moment, if you'd like to give online or in the back as you leave, to, to give towards hope in many ways in our lives. Amen. Oh. 
Make heaven. 